Coming up on today's show, Pierre Polyev poised to win the leadership. I mean, it's early, but right now he certainly seems to be doing well among the pollsters. We'll walk through the latest numbers. Power companies pulled in nearly five times the profit during the winter rate spike that we saw. And should you rent or buy a home? We always think buying's better, but there's an argument to be made for renting. Pierre Polyev is killing it on the campaign trail to become leader of the uh, Conservative Party of Canada. He's uh, doing very well, both within the party and in the way that Canadians feel about what he's doing as to whether or not he is the front runner. He, I think at this point he clearly is the front runner. We're going to talk about some new polling around this with Sean Simpson, who is the Senior Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs. He joins us now. Sean, thanks for your time. Appreciate you joining us. Oh, hang on. Sorry, I forgot to push the button. Sean, that was my fault. Sorry about that. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Um, yeah, when we take a look at this polling, and I think, you know, it, it's the impression that most of us have, probably have widely seen as, as the presumptive winner, or the leader at this point anyway, right? We're going to, you know, even outside of the party, he's polling far better than Jean Charest. Yeah, it's it's uh, hard to come with any other conclusion at, at at the moment. He just seems to have a lot of momentum. He's getting a lot of airtime in the media. And as such, when we ask Canadians overall who they think is going to win, they believe uh, Poiliev has a has a substantial lead over uh, second place Jean Charest. Now, when we ask them who they want to win, it's yeah. a little bit of a different story. Poiliev's lead shrinks uh, to just a couple of points over, over Jean Charest. But what's really interesting here is that uh, the, the party is faced with uh, two uh, quite different um, scenarios, two different visions or, or realities. The first is that you've got a candidate in in Poiliev who is quite well liked within the party. That the, the the polling shows that among Conservative Party voters, he he's he's seen quite uh, favorably, um, but not favorably uh, among voters of every other party. So you could have a unified party with limited options to grow under Poiliev leadership, or if you look at uh, the other uh, sort of leading candidate, Jean Charest, actually viewed unfavorably uh, within the party, Conservative Party uh, uh, voters, those who say that they would vote Conservative in the next election. However, uh, viewed upon quite favorably by people outside the party, in particular liberal voters, have a favorable view of, of Jean Charest. So uh, if, if the Conservative Party wants to grow its tent and, and have a better shot at winning the general election, Jean Charest looks like the better choice. But then you've got a, a party, I think, of, of different factions uh, and, and potentially, you know, uh, the chance for another schism within the party. Exactly, exactly. So let's go through the numbers a little bit here. In terms of nationally, people, not just Conservatives, but Canadians across the board, I mean, Paul, you have... 20%. He's doing quite well there, but it, ju- it doubles when you go within the party, right? So you're right. He's got a bit of a, not a, a black or white, but there's certainly a gap between what's within the party and outside of the party. Yeah, absolutely. Outside of the party, Charest seems to be favored within the party. It's it's Polia pretty well by by a mile. In fact, there's only two candidates uh, that uh, we test. We tested eleven. Yeah, like these other guys aren't, aren't even making out. A, yeah, yeah, a noise. They come out as a neck favorable among party supporters. It's Polia, but actually, less than Lewis. Uh, uh, does fairly well uh, among conservative voters and within uh, within Alberta. Actually, one of the only candidates who has a net positive rating within the province of Alberta as well. So all the other candidates, uh, you know, most Canadians and indeed Conservative Party voters, said they don't even know who they are. 
uh, it's it's really only Jean Charest and Poiliev who a majority of Canadians know. Now, Jean Charest, uh, I, I think, is hoping that he can deliver the province of Quebec, both right. in terms of signing up Conservative Party members, but then also in a general election, which is what the Conservative Party desperately needs in order to win uh, uh, federally. However, our polling shows that you know that the near decade uh, uh, reign of of uh, Charest as, as premier um, is actually net baggage for him within the province of Quebec. Most see him in an unfavorable light rather than a favorable light. So the fact that he was you know Captain Canada during the last referendum yeah. doesn't seem to matter too much uh, because uh, you know within the province of Quebec uh, it, it's a net negative, which obviously has to be a very ominous sign for him if he can't. I mean that's got to be where his entire base of support comes from. Um, now, let's let, let's just put it bluntly here. This We're talking about a race for the leadership of the Conservative Party, so I think at this point, Polyev probably do, really doesn't give a damn what Liberals or NDPs think about him. At this point, he may have to down the road, but right now his job is to win leadership of the, of the Conservative Party. That's right, but, you know, uh, history uh, is, is threatening to repeat itself a little bit because, you remember, the last uh, campaign... Uh, Aaron O'Toole actually presented himself as a more right-leaning uh, candidate and was able to secure the second-place votes of people like Leslie Lewis, uh, you know, who, who, who are more uh, on the right, uh, right wing of, of, of the party. And then, of course, Aaron O'Toole, once elected leader, started pivoting to the center to try to woo um, uh, liberal and other swing voters. Well, the party faithful didn't like that, and he got turfed pretty darn quickly uh, after losing the election. So Pierre Poiliev is probably saying, well, I, I don't know how much I want to pivot after, uh, you know, potentially winning the leadership because it would just be the same tactic that Aaron O'Toole used. He actually might stick more to his right wing leanings uh, and, 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 and try to uh, try to win an election that way. I, 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 these figures suggest that he might not be all that successful doing that either because he's viewed quite unfavorably outside of the party. Um, and, and the other ones, I'm kind of surprised by Lewis in particular, uh, Patrick Brown, not so much, but I thought he'd have more of an impact. Do you think there's a, a runway for them? Or, I mean, obviously their, their endorsements and as the race unfolds, you know, if they start endorsing, that could really change things. Do, are, are they already in that territory, do you think? Yeah, well, I think Leslie Lewis is, is you know, being, being her second uh, leadership yeah. contest now, probably has a bit of a, a better ground game than many of the other candidates, perhaps with the exception of Patrick Brown. But the thing about Patrick Brown is that outside of Ontario, nobody really knows who he is. Of course, he was a, uh, a leadership hopeful uh, uh, in the last provincial election, had to step down for various reasons, uh, is, is the mayor of, of, of Brampton. But to an Albertan, none of that really matters. Uh, so uh, I think, you know, he will struggle to get his ground game going uh, in the West. Uh, and um, Leslie Lewis already had a, a chance in the last leadership election to, to lay that, that groundwork. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that she's going to, to compete very well with, with Poilier, but if she puts her support behind him, uh, you know, it's hard to see how any other candidate could, could pull together a coalition big enough to beat him. Interesting times, and, and we've still got a few months to see how it plays out, but it's an interesting to get the lay of the land now, Sean. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. That's Sean Simpson, who is the Senior Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs, walking us through the, the numbers. And yeah, again, um, within the Conservative Party, Polyev has 37% favorability to 14% 
for Jean Charest. Uh, outside of the party, it's 20% for Polyev, 12% for Jean Charest. So, interesting. prices and your bills and rebates and all of that stuff, certainly uh, a topic of discussion in our part of the world this week. We know that there was a big uh, debate down at the legislature yesterday. They used to be coming up with a plan to get you 50 bucks a month back retroactively. It's for January, February, and March. When? Eh, we don't know. We don't really know. Hopefully June, maybe July. Uh, UCP government says they are working with the power companies. Um and asking them to get their billing adjusted as quickly as possible. Apparently, the rebate will appear on your bill, but uh, we don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but it's going to happen. Uh, 50 bucks a month is the situation that you're looking at here. How much of a difference is that going to make? Realistically, take a look at the bills that you got in January, February, and March. Does 50 bucks make... I mean, hey, we'll take it. It's 50 bucks. It's good. But um, I think your bill probably went up a whole lot more than that. You remember the jump, you know, massive, massive increase. And, and and there are all kinds of reasons, speculation, people talking about, well, this is what happened. This is why I went in a carbon tax. That always gets blamed for a lot, by a lot. Uh, a lot of people, we, we know the carbon tax is, is, a, is a sore spot. And it certainly did play a role in this. Not that much, though, really. Um, service charges and fees, we all know that that is certainly a situation with utilities in Alberta. And it did play a role. Not that much. There's one overriding factor in terms of why you saw a record high bill. And according to our next guest, it's power company profit. Plain and simple. So we're going to chat now with Blake Schaefer. Blake is an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary. Recently did a report on this very discussion. And uh, Blake, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. You bet. Thanks for having me, Shay. Um, okay, so take us through the work. What, what did you look at, and how did you come to this conclusion? What was sort of the analysis that you did? Yeah, so it was kind of to get at exactly what you were just saying. You know, everyone's aware bills are higher, power prices are higher, but why? Why is that? Because if we're going to prescribe a policy prescription, we need to get the diagnosis right. And so what me and my co-authors did, and this is actually part of a larger research project, is you effectively recreate the entire Alberta electric system in, in a model. And this model is, well, what if everybody was just offering at their marginal cost, their cost to generate? And that allows us to see what happens when we change all of these important factors. What happens when demand goes up, when natural gas prices go up, when the carbon price goes up? And we can see what those factors do to the price and how important each of them are. And it can also allow us to disentangle how much of this is due to the cost to generate going up versus that difference, the markup, if you will, the difference between what it costs them and what they're charging uh, to consumers. Okay. And the finding was, you know, all those things that we talked about, carbon tax, um, you know, user fees, th th those all play a role in here for sure. But that wasn't the, the reason that you settled on, right? Basically, it was just a mm -hmm. big, big markup. Yeah, I mean, two-thirds of the energy price change is effectively an increase in the markup. So an increase in firms charging above their marginal cost in 2021 as compared to 2020. Now, in 2020, the markup was quite low. In fact, it's been quite low for the past five years, arguably too low, unsustainable for many companies. So Alberta is quite different than other provinces in that uh, the firms need to earn a markup. They need to earn something above their marginal cost because they've got to recoup all those fixed costs. So it's not that the markup per se is bad. 
it's simply that's what explains the jump. It, it is not, as you said, uh, the carbon price. That that accounted for about, I think I, we calculated about 4%, 4% of the overall yeah. change. So it's very small. Uh, increase in demand mattered. That was about 15% because you have to climb up the ladder of power plants. You've got to use more expensive ones. Uh, natural gas was up a ton in 2021 versus 2020. That added about 10%. Uh, or that explains about 10% of the change. But again, two-thirds of the change is, is simply put, um, tighter market conditions and more market concentration led to the opportunity for firms to start recovering those fixed costs that they hadn't been recovering in previous years. So that's really where the increase is coming from. Yeah, and they did. They went from 9 bucks uh, <laughs> as a megawatt hour in 2020 to 35 bucks in 2021. So like you say, the markup yeah. was huge. Yeah, yeah. So, so it is. It was the big increase. Um, I think there's there will be work happening. It's probably already happening right now. We do have a market surveillance administrator, and they take a look at whether or not the market the markup going on is reasonable. If there's anything that's impeding competition, I don't. We don't see any evidence of that. The biggest question is how transient is this? How yeah. quickly will this? Um, get mitigated by effectively new entry coming in uh, to say, I'll, I'll take a chunk of that. Those are nice prices. And, and we will get that. The problem is it takes time in power markets. Um, now, let's. there's so many reasons and so much finger pointing about governments having played a role in this. We should point out that deregulation of the electric market in Alberta did end last year, right? How does all that fit into it? Well, no, no, it didn't end. What, what ended was the 20-year PPAs, which which really kick-started, if you will, the deregulation process, or they were right. a main mechanism. Um, so the idea behind those PPAs was in the year 2000, when we had gone, like you say, deregulated or, or, or competitive, we only really had three firms that controlled 90% of the market. So we weren't going to be competitive. So they did these PPAs to, to disperse the control across more players in the market. Those lasted 20 years, and they ended at the end of 2020, meaning um, we're still in that deregulated world. We're still in the competitive world, but the control came back to those original three. Now, they don't have 90% anymore because the market got bigger. There are new players, but they did just jump to being over half of the market in terms of the control of the generating capacity. And so when you have a lot of control from in a few players, that's when we get exposed to the potential for an increase in markups. Gotcha. Okay, what about yeah. uh, Rachel Notley yesterday was talking about they removed the cap. They removed the cap, and that's why we're mm-hmm. in the mess there. And what's this cap? Well, so that's interesting. The, the cap was actually just on retail rates, what you and I pay, okay. if we're on that floating one. Um, the cap didn't affect what goes on in these wholesale markets. What the cap did is it, it created a wedge, if you will, between what the wholesale market is and what you're going to pay. And we saw that while the cap was in place, even though we were capped out at paying 6.8 cents for our energy portion, um, sometimes the market was closer to 10 cents and the government made up the difference. And so it was effectively a subsidy between the wholesale market and, and the, the retail market. Uh, it did expose consumers to these high prices when we removed it. Most people, I'd say more than half of Albertans, are on a fixed rate. The moment they took the cap off, I went to a fixed rate. I think increasingly we're seeing people go on a fixed rate. But those that aren't, those are the folks that you just mentioned last winter. Yeah. Uh, the energy portion of the bill went from an average of, say, 5 to $0.08. Cents. It jumped to $0.16. Cents. 
Uh, and that's not your whole bill. There's those other pesky components yep. that you mentioned, uh, which are increasingly taking up a share of the bill. But, but they aren't the source of the big jump recently. They've been just steadily rising like water torture. It was the energy portion that jumped. Um, so where, what do we, is it too late to lock in? Is that still your best plan to get off the roller coaster, even though we're where we are? I mean, what do you recommend for people that don't want to go through what they went through last winter? I'm still recommending it. Okay. So, yeah, it's a, you missed an opportunity last winter to save some money, and the fixed rates have climbed. Uh, so they're, you know, a, a full penny higher. Um, but still, on both gas and power, um, when people ask me, my unsolicited advice uh, or free advice is uh, go fixed. Important to know that if you go fixed, even on a five-year term, that term is a responsibility of the retailer to guarantee you that rate. In most cases, you can switch out. So you don't have to feel like you're locking in at the top of the market and you're going to be stuck here when prices finally do crash out. Oh, really? You can leave. Yeah, most of the retailers allow that. You want to check because it's not all, but most of the retailers allow that. And the reason they do is because they know that people like us, we don't have the fullest of information on these things. Sure. And if we're getting pressured to lock in, we might make a mistake. And so effectively, you're given an out. Again, check your, the policy you're looking at, because it's not all of them, but most of them do that. Um, so I plan to switch back to a floating rate in a year or two when I expect prices to come back down. So, like, that's no risk. I mean, if you can get out because something better comes along, why wouldn't you do that? It makes perfect sense. Well, you know what it is? Effectively, we're all lazy. Yeah, you're right. Decisions <laughs> and things we have to do. There's not many folks who are going to be staying, paying close attention and say, okay, now I'll go fix. Now I'll go floating. But if you want to do that, you can save a few bucks. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, is, it is kind of a free option out there that they leave to us because they kind of understand that most folks aren't going to do it, and um, we are at an information disadvantage. All right. Great stuff. Blake, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Okay. Take care. Thanks. That's Blake Schaefer, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Economics, University of Calgary. Part of the team that really did the deep dive into the soaring utility bills that we saw last winter and tried to figure out where that increase came from. And you're all texting me all kinds of different reasons, and you're right. They all played a role. On the topic of home ownership in Calgary, or Canada, and Calgary, and Edmonton, and all over the province, um, we know that uh, the, the price of homes in our country just continues to rise. It's over $800,000 for the average home. It's a little bit better in our province. I mean, it's under five hundred in Edmonton, about five and a half in Calgary. It's still a lot of money. And, um, you know, it, it's difficult. It's very, very difficult for people to get into the market. So I think maybe the calculation is changing because I think for a long time we've just had this idea, this thought process, this sort of we see it as something that we need to do. You need to buy your home. You can't rent. Renting is crazy. Don't do Is that true? Or is there another way to look at it? We're going to find out. We're going to chat now with uh, Jean-Francois Perrault, who is the chief economist at Scotiabank. Um, get him on the air here. Mr. Pearl, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. No, you're very welcome. It's happy to be on. It's an interesting discussion because I think, you know, I, I'm 50 years old and for me, it's always just been, well, that's what you do. You, you, you grow up and when you're growing up, you buy a home and that's really, that's really the only smart thing to do. Is there, is that a common perception that a lot of people is certainly, you know, people in my mm-hmm. age and older believe that, yeah, you buy a home. That's what we do. 
Well, I'm, I'm 50 years old as well, and that was that was that was the same thing with me. I mean, as soon as I could when I was uh, in my 20s, yeah. late 20s, I bought a house because that's <laughs> that's what we're kind of programmed to do, and that's what everybody was doing back then. Um, I think I think as a country, we are generally, um, uh, you know, we are active homebuyers. I mean, our home ownership rate in Canada is pretty high by international standards, higher than the U.S., higher than Europe, um, and that reflects, you know, this 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 cultural. Um, preference for, for for home buying across and, the country, and it's not just you know the cultural preference. Like that, I think you're right. That's that's a big part of it. There are very good reasons to buy, right? I mean, you can make really good arguments on the financial side of this. That yeah, it's a smart thing to do. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, the the reality is um, that there, you know, for for homeowners, uh, if you've got a single principal residence, you know, the tax sheltered gains that occur when your house rises in value and you eventually sell it are, are quite substantial. Right? I mean, that is, is a, a very, very favorable tax treatment to those kinds of savings. So there is, in fact, historically been a financial incentive to want to buy a house, given that, you know, you could accumulate a lot of savings in there and dispose of them at some point in time and not have to pay any income tax on that. So, and I mean, obviously, that's a great benefit. It's also, it's an investment. A lot of people see it as sort of their retirement, right? I mean, they're, they're yeah. buying their home, and that's going to just appreciate in value, and it's a good investment. Absolutely, and, and that has certainly been the case over the last uh, number of years yeah. in Canada. That that you know, if you bought a house five years ago, almost anywhere in the country, chances are you've made a lot of money off that property already. And, you know, I'm wondering if this fits into it at all. You know, hearing all these stories about the prices of homes going up 25% and, you know, it's absolutely crazy and then it's going to come down and there's going to be a correction. For a guy who owns his home and has no intentions on moving, it's kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Like, you're not into that. You're not worried about all that sort of stuff if you've bought a home and you're mm-hmm. staying in it for a while, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, the, you know, the people that are worried about a house price decline are, you know, those that basically bought it. A year ago or 18 months yeah. ago. And, and I worried, okay, well, maybe if prices fall 10, 15, 20%, I'll be underwater for a period of time. Um, I don't think that's very likely, but that those are the wardens that, that you know, might be worried about that. For the rest of, of folks that have bought their place a couple of years ago, beyond that, I mean, the price decline that you would ex- need to see for people to be in negative equity is, is like, it's, it's almost unrealistic for most, for most markets. Like, that's not likely to happen. So it's a very... Effectively, it's a very safe investment. It has been a very safe investment. So we often look at, I think a lot of us look at renting as you're throwing money away. It's a waste of money. Mm-hmm. You're just giving money to somebody else. You should be saving it in the form of having property that you own. Um, is that entirely yeah. true? I mean, is it all bad? Is it a complete waste of money to be renting? Of course not. No, I mean, it's a perfectly, it's a perfectly valid approach to, to homeownership, right? I mean, as I said... A lot of folks around the world, a lot of countries around the world, advanced countries, folks rent to a significant degree more than, than they do here. So there's no stigma attached to renting in other parts of the world. Is um, there upside? Now, Is there benefits to renting that we're not you know, paying attention to here? Well, well I mean, there's... Sure. I mean, for most folks, rent is cheaper than paying for a mortgage, right? So you are able to save in a different way if you if you have the ability to save in relation to your income. Um, you know, some folks you know, don't want to buy a house. They're perfectly happy being renters. Um, you know, renting provides you an opportunity to to ride out some cycles, right? If you are a risk-averse person and you're afraid of what might happen to home prices if you were to purchase one, renting provides you with, with, with obviously, the, the safety of not having to worry about that. 
Um, and for and for a lot of people, and increasingly a lot of people, there isn't really a choice. You, you yeah. know, you it's if you can't afford a twenty percent down payment on a house that's now eight hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, five hundred fifty thousand, depending on where you are in the country, you need shelter at the end of the day, and and so you're going to rent. And there's I don't think there should be any I don't think folks should think about that in any kind of negative terms, in, in sense of what it means uh, in respect of that person's decision making ability. Um, so I don't think there should be a stigma. I think I think there is a little bit of a stigma yeah. um, because of this history that we have. But the reality is that we we have no choice, given where we are in the, in, in the house price cycle, given how uh, unaffordable homes are now to a large proportion of Canadians, and given the fact that we need shelter. Like it's it's almost mathematical. People are going to be turning to the rental market much more than they have historically, and that I think will, you know, the change attitudes with respect to home ownership across the country. You know, in terms of an investment, when you take a look at it, and I think you know the thinking is uh, just for the sake of round numbers, you buy a house for a hundred thousand dollars. Ten years later, you sell it for two hundred thousand dollars. Hey, you've made a hundred thousand dollars. Not a chance. Not a chance. I mean, all of us who own a home know maybe you've had to do a roof. You've had to do a furnace. You've had to put in a dry... Who knows what? But you've spent a lot of money that you wouldn't have to spend if you were a renter. So it's not like it's all gravy, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you've got property taxes. You've got land transfer costs. Interest. You've got commissions. You've got interest. Um, it's not, I mean, it, it's by no means a slam dunk. Now, when prices are going up 20, 30% a yeah. year, it's a pretty easy, like it is kind of a slam dunk, but you can't, you can't anticipate that prices are going to go up by that amount. I mean, it, nobody thinks prices are going to go up by 20% when you buy a place. I mean, maybe some people do. I don't. Um, so, you know, you end up being fortunate in that perspective, but clearly, like, being a homeowner it requires you know, a lot more than just your mortgage payment. Oh, boy, does it ever, yeah. Um, and the, the last one, in terms of investing, uh, I, like you're saying, what we're seeing with um, real estate, the the appreciation on those investments right now, yeah, okay, clear winners. But if you're in a typical market where, you know, if you're going to be in a house for 10 years, if you took the money that you weren't spending on, like you say, the interest or the property taxes or whatever, and you are just paying your rent, and all of that you were putting in an outside investment that you can control and you can direct and you can sort of navigate your way through it, is there a possibility you come out wealthier at the end of it that way than just hoping that the housing market goes up? Certainly, right? I mean, obviously, if you're, if you're a really, really good investor and you manage to secure solid gains in your, in your portfolio, then those gains can outstrip those that you'd make on, on a housing investment. Um, there's, no, there's no question about that now. You know, it depends on the financial literacy of, of, of individuals, their risk tolerance, their ability to identify good financial, financial make good financial decisions, and that's, and that's not easy. Um, but it's, of course, it's possible. And, and the reality is, again, for, for well, this is available to both homeowners and, and renters now, but there are tax-free savings programs that allow folks to, you know, if you've got lower monthly payments, for instance, because you're renting as opposed to homeowning, then maybe you can put more into a TFSA and then accrue those those financial benefits in a, in a, in a tax-sheltered environment. So there are, it's not, it's not a slam dunk in terms yeah. of house price owning being, Definitely a better financial solution than homeownership. It certainly was the case over the last number of years, but I think what we've experienced the last number of years is, is pretty atypical in terms of what happens okay. in the housing market. Yeah, no doubt. Is there a way? I mean, can you walk into to um, the bank and say, "Hey, listen, I'm, I'm thinking about this, and I don't know what's best for me. This is my situation. Is there a, a calculation that can be done to say, you know, what you might be better off renting or buying?" 
Uh, sure. I mean, I, I, th- I think if, if folks are kind of debating that, they should go into a bank or, or you know, talk to a financial advisor, and then they will guide them with the best, uh, you know, the best plan possible, and whether that's home ownership, whether that's renting, yeah. you know, thinking about savings vehicles, thinking about, you know, savings for your kids' education. There's all kinds of considerations that go into a financial plan, and they're all relevant at the end of the day to the decision of home uh, being a homeowner versus a renter. You know, cash flow and liquidity and risk, all that matters in, in, in setting up these things. Great stuff. I really appreciate your time, Mr. Perot. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. You bet. That is Jean-Francois Perot, who is the Chief Economist at Scotiabank. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.